0: Everybody who listens to Future Primitive, we're back with a wonderful guest, Linda Bazell Saltzman. She is the founder of the International Association for Echotherapy and the editor of the Echotherapy News. IAE brings together therapists, educators, students, and clients who are interested in the field of applied eco-psychology and healing the human-nature relationship. Linda is the co-editor with Craig Childquist of the anthology Ecotherapy, Healing with Nature in Mind that was released by the Sierra Club Books. She's a psychotherapist and ecotherapist in Santa Barbara, where she specializes in helping clients with career-issue financial challenges and the transition to a simpler, more sustainable and nature-connected lifestyle. Linda also has a background in the media She's worked on documentaries with Captain Jean-Yves Cousteau and a lot of other things, but uh, I will leave that for now and uh, say welcome, Linda. Oh, thank you, Joanna. So, Linda, I've been burning to talk with you partly because of the riots in London and um, I know that uh, you say that our feeling so separate from nature uh, makes us very unhealthy beings. And so I've been thinking a lot of the, those pictures of these people looting and trying to get something. Could you comment on that?
1: you know, something that people don't often connect with eco-psychology is the impact that the environment has on the economy and the current instability of the economy. And there's a quote that I love. I think it's from Herman Daly that the environment, I mean that the economy is a wholly owned subsidiary of the environment. And as we're... Um, entering the post-peak oil era and we have so many environmental stressors in terms of energy and resources and all kinds of other difficulties, uh, global climate instability, what we're seeing is the economy beginning to basically devolve and symptoms of that are showing up lots of places. There's more pressure on food, there's definitely more pressure on jobs. I mean, the whole system that we, the industrial system that we've gotten used to, even though it's destroying the planet, um, people get very upset when they see it begin to fade under their feet.
0: And would you would you say that um, this uh, fading might be due... Uh, to the depression we feel about being so disconnected from nature
1: yes but I see it as indirect I mean I, it, there's absolute scientific proof at this point that reconnecting with nature is profoundly healing and has an antidepressant effect and an anti anxiety effect um, so there's no question that that's part of the solution But I'm not sure exactly what is happening in London now and whether if you talk to somebody who is rioting, they would say, I'm rioting because I have no access to green space.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah, but on the other hand, uh, perhaps it's about uh, filling a hole in oneself uh, that can only be... um, that can only feel feel whole by connecting with nature. I mean, people are living in cities of 10 million, 20 million people. Um, can you speak to that?
1: I totally agree with you about that, that there, because of our disconnection from the rest of nature, and of course we're part of nature too, um, there is a hole inside of people, and we don't know what... Is causing that, and of course, that can underlie things like addictions and all kinds of antisocial behavior. Um, it, it, we we don't know what's wrong with us, so we don't know how to fix it. But what tends to happen is that when people do get reconnected with nature, whether it's an inner city community garden um, or a, a wilderness experience or anything like that that's when people start waking up
0: and realizing, oh, this is what I've been missing. So, for instance, you say that uh, to be in connection with the earth itself, with the homeless, with the with the earth, can make us more intelligent. And yet, one used to think that um, so-called peasants were not intelligent, so... Could you speak to the connection between uh, intelligence and common sense?
1: Well, I think we've been profoundly arrogant. Um, You know, as we have separated ourselves out from nature or thought we had, we we began to have really an arrogant approach to the rest of nature, feeling like basically it's just here for our use, we can exploit it. And then anyone connected to nature, whether it's indigenous peoples or people who are rural, there's been this huge prejudice. And we have fooled ourselves into thinking that we are so much more intelligent than indigenous people or rural people. And I think what we're about to discover is that we actually lack some of the basic skills for survival that many of those people still have, and and we need to be the students, not the teachers.
0: Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Linda, could you talk to us about um, echotherapy and uh, what it is and how you practice it? Well,
1: echotherapy... And and just to put it in a short way, it's it's psychotherapy as if the rest of the world and nature mattered. Mm -hmm. It's almost like we've had blinders on in the field of psychotherapy. It's over 100 years old, but we've focused almost exclusively on human-human relationships and have been blind to the rest of nature of which we're a part. So, ecotherapy involves really widening the scope Um, of how we view things and certainly how we view mental illness and mental health so that we include the rest of nature with it as uh, Dr. Sarah Kahn, um, an ecotherapist, says and she's been working at at Harvard for some time there's no such thing as mental health in the absence of environmental health and people have forgotten that they've somehow, I mean if you think about this in therapeutic terms you realize that there's some kind of psychopathology going on in how we view the rest of nature. You know, we're in the process of destroying our own life support systems. Well, in psychotherapy, that's called being suicidal. Mm-hmm. We're destroying our mother. Well, that's a serious psychological problem if you're attempting to murder your mother. Right. I mean, it's really crazy, this kind of... Um, approach that we have taken over the last, you know, it's it's a long time that we've been having these arrogant attitudes, and you realize that there's a psychological problem here that perhaps um, ecotherapy can at least address.
0: My, my mind jumped, and I wondered if uh, prisons uh, are so... Uh, made of concrete and steel, because the worst punishment is to be so disconnected from nature. What do you think of that?
1: I think you're absolutely right. I mean, there, there is that is a form of torture, isn't it? Yeah. When you cannot get outside, you can't get your hands on the earth. You can't smell a flower. You can't touch a tree. I mean, all that's left is maybe a little sliver of sky that you can see through your barred windows.
0: So torture is being totally disconnected from nature, a a form of torture, yeah. I
1: think it is. And what's so strange in, in our modern society is that we don't understand the nature of this torture that we're inflicting on ourselves. We don't understand perhaps why we feel the way we feel. It seems like how could it be that nature would be the antidote for what we're feeling? We don't even think that. We we think, oh, well, you know, I, I, my, my relationship should, with other people should be better or I should be making more money. I mean, it's always in the human-human context, and we keep forgetting that there's a really big earth
0: and a really big universe and cosmos out there and that we are a part of it. Mhm. Mhm. Well, let's talk a, a practical as you said in the quote you sent me, practically, psychologically and spiritually, how can we deal with the perfect storm of challenge that's currently confronting our species?
1: My husband and I have been involved um, for over 10 years with a voluntary Simplicity Circle and it's been one of the best things that we've done and something I encourage others to, um, to explore, the whole idea of beginning to live more lightly on the earth, to escape from the whole consumerist mindset and You know, of course, in these difficult economic times, it makes even more sense than it did when we started to talk about this with other people. And we read the book Voluntary Simplicity by Dwayne Elgin, which I highly recommend. It's a wonderful book. And as you begin to sort of get out of the clutches of the consumer economy, you not only have more money, which is a nice thing, but you also, your life gets so much simpler And you can redefine the concept of wealth, that wealth no longer means having a bunch of stuff, that wealth means having time, time to connect with nature. Uh, We're big gardeners, so we like to have time to just be in the garden. Um, And that's where and connect with nature in other ways. And that's where wealth comes from in community and connection with nature.
0: Speak about um, permaculture gardens and through the permaculture gardens, the mind-spirit interaction with the earth. My husband
1: and I took the permaculture design course in 2006, and it was a real eye-opener for us. Just looking at the permaculture ethics, which are very simple, care for the earth, Care for the people, share the surplus. Really simple philosophy of life, and then the permaculture principles, which are based on how nature works, and then using those principles to design your garden or your your housing or the, your way of living, um, it or even your your psychological way of going through the world, your way of life. It um, it puts you profoundly back into harmony with the way nature does things, and I think that's the base of of the problem with how we're behaving um, on this planet, is that we're out of sync with the way Mother Nature does things, Mm -hmm. and permaculture, at least for us, has been very helpful in sort of getting us back into that frame of mind, and actually Craig Chalquist and I wrote a little dialogue, which is up on our website, um, com, where we looked at the permaculture principles and we began to talk about how to apply those to what permaculture people call Zone Zero, or Zone Zero Zero, which is basically your interior, you know, your spiritual life, your psychological life, your interior life. And they're just as relevant there as they are
0: you know, when you're planning a garden. So, would you speak about uh, the green cutting edge in terms of the fact that you say, I believe that if you position yourself at or near the green cutting edge of whatever arena you're in or want to be in, you can enjoy an inspiring, meaningful career with a truly sustainable future. Could you um, speak to us about that?
1: Yeah. I, I teach a class um, on sustainable careers that I call Beyond Green Jobs because more and more people are aware of career possibilities in the green jobs area. But I believe that we have to re-envision and redesign every single basic field of humor and human endeavor, whether it's healthcare, care, education, Um, you know, the way we get our food, all of that has to be redesigned according to these nature-friendly principles. And what's really encouraging is that doing the right thing becomes also doing the smart thing. It's the way that we can be most resilient as we go through this, this huge transition or this huge turning point in human history as we move away from what uh, Joanna Macy calls Mm -hmm. life-destroying society to life-enhancing society. So it's just a huge turning point. And some people call it collapse and other people call it transition. There's different names for it. But I think the more awake people become to what's really going on all around us, it it begins to explain the things that we see. So it's not so mysterious when we see rioting in London, or we see the stock market collapsing in the U.S. after the downgrade, or all these different things happen all over the planet and they don't seem to make any sense until you begin to connect the dots with the underlying things that are happening during this transition.
0: Well, um, that brought a question to, to my mind, which is, um, um, the connection between uh, poverty, inner city poverty, and uh, reconnecting to the earth can of can a person who's uh, unbelievably depressed and concerned about being poor rekindle a, a respect for nature absolutely in fact, the
1: cutting edge of a lot of green activity right now in permaculture and in other areas is um, urban homesteading or urban gardening and basically greening up cities, just starting to um, plant things, put things in pots on your balcony or outside your door on your concrete patio or taking an empty lot and turning it into a community garden. I mean, these are things that empower people and give them fresh food, get them outdoors, even in the city. It's not just being in the city, it's being disconnected from nature and you can start that transformation, that reconnecting with nature, even in a city apartment.
0: Okay. So you speak of ecotherapy as an emergency medicine. Uh, Could you speak to that?
1: and and in in crisis areas, echotherapy can be extremely useful. I mean, I think we're heading into a period now where we're going to have more and more of these shocks or crises that are happening, and they happen in different parts of the world. Maybe it's the you know the oil spill in the Gulf mm-hmm. or maybe it's a tsunami somewhere or whatever. but in each situation um People can come in, and a lot of permaculture trained people are now doing that, like working in Haiti or other places that have had one of these shocks, and really working with people to do emergency disaster relief, but not in the sense of just shipping in industrial goods from the West, but basically helping people reconnect with their own land and how they can support themselves from that land, getting back their sustainability which in many places it was there and it's been destroyed because people have been convinced that what they really needed to do was grow an export crop and not grow their own food anymore, Mm
0: -hmm. which
1: is a huge mistake. But that, that, you know, especially in many places, that indigenous knowledge is very close under the surface and it can be reconnected with. And then people can really begin to get
0: back to a sustainable way of living that their grandparents had. So, in, in practicality, can you give us some, uh, some concrete examples that uh, would uh, help us to turn to nature for richness rather than turning against each other at this tipping point?
1: of the things I do with my clients is I recommend that people think about what method of nature connection is most, um, calls them most, that they most prefer, because people are different with this. Um, I have a friend who is a therapist, and she was telling me, you know, I just, I'm a city kind of gal. I really don't think I'm going to go for this ecotherapy kind of thing. I'm not into gardening or. I'm not into wilderness hiking. And because I know her, I knew that she had two cats. And I said, but what about your kitties? You love them. And she said, oh, I just love my kitties. Mm -hmm. And it was like you're doing animal-assisted therapy, and you don't realize that. That's a form of ecotherapy. You're connecting with nature through your cats. And that's what I mean about different people have different things. and just discovering what it is that just excites you or grabs you, whether it's animals or gardens or wilderness or nature's beauty or the sun and the moon or water or wind. I mean, once we kind of find that thing for us, that part of nature, that seems like it's just deep down in our soul, then just, you know, creating a little more of that maybe you uh every year you go once to the wilderness if you're interested in doing ecotherapy on yourself you could say well let's see if we could schedule it so that you go more often and that you find some wilderness that's a little bit closer than let's say yosemite yes and you can regularly go and see how that works if that's kind of a healing very spiritual ritual for you And let's see how it changes how you feel or your mood or your anxiety levels. And it's not difficult for people to do this. It's just that people don't think about it. And another method of reconnecting with wild nature is the wild nature in our bodies. Yes. If our bodies are part of nature, then suddenly your yoga or dance or breath work or somatic experiences, that can be a healing thing. You're just, you're breathing. Or you can, some people connect with wild psyche, which is uncontrolled by your ego through, like, eco-dream work, where you're, um, you know, you begin to track your dreams, and you see if any images of nature come up in your dreams, and then perhaps even meditate on those and see what nature might be communicating to you. And, um, you know, other people uh, do, uh, just do outdoor exercise. Instead of going to these factory-like gyms, take the same thing. If you like the bicycle, instead of going on the stationary bicycle at the gym watching television, take that bicycle outdoors. See if there's any difference for you. And there is some research now that outdoor exercise is actually more helpful than Exercise
0: indoors. So let's talk about cooking. Ah, yes. <laughs> you say that America doesn't have a food crisis; it has a cooking crisis. Yes, that's true. So, tell us about that.
1: Oh boy! I mean, this again one of the one of the best ways to begin to connect wild nature is to begin to connect up the wild nature in your own body with the wild nature that you consume, because of course we survive by consuming either vegetables or animals or milk or eggs, and sort of connecting the dots between where your food comes from and how it feels inside your body. And that middle step is where we seem to be not connecting all the dots, which is how you cook and process that food, if you do, assuming you're not just eating raw, um, and then how that impacts this whole big cycle that goes on as we eat nature.
0: Okay. Well, I'm back to my my question. Ecotherapy. How are we going to turn... This um, this incredibly abstract world back to reconnecting with what is um, what what is just natural and smells and how are we going to call it something else than dirt? Mm, yeah, yeah. There's a big difference between dirt and
1: earth, isn't there? Yeah, yeah.
0: I mean, I shiver every time I hear somebody call the earth dirt.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah, it just shows that total unawareness that what's going on in the soil is alive. And, of course, this comes back to the issue of food that we were talking about, that we want our food that grows in that soil to be growing in a live, healthy earth. And yet much of modern industrial farming involves basically killing everything in the soil and then pumping in sort of chemical fertilizers, pesticides, all that Mm -hmm. kind of stuff. I mean, you might as well not have soil at that point. And what people don't seem to realize is that all of that life in the soil is gathering up nutrition and then passing that along into the plant that you eat. And we're beginning to have the studies now to show that food that is grown organically actually has greater nutritional value than food that's just sort of sprayed and pumped up and then you know, stuck in a truck and shipped miles and miles and miles, and then it sits in your supermarket getting sprayed with water until you eat it. It's already old and not fresh. And of course, the freshest food is the food you eat while you're wandering around your garden nibbling.
0: I, I just had this thought can a tomato from Holland be jet lagged by the time you get it? <laughs>
1: <laughs> exactly, that's right
0: And if I suddenly had this compassion for these tomatoes from Holland that must, must be completely out of phase, you know Exactly,
1: that's right And it's why there's this big movement now towards what they call locavores You know, people yeah. who eat locally they won't eat anything that isn't grown or raised within 100 miles of where they live
0: Does much of all this uh, uh, have to do perhaps with our our disgust of our own bodies and uh, the fact that um, what's inside of of us seems like a dark place or the place of the shadow because we can't see it? Mm -hmm. I think
1: very much so. And the model that many people have of their own bodies is an industrial one. It's like your body is some kind of mechanical machine um, or chemical machine. And it's just a a very distancing way of treating this really sacred part of nature, your body. And um, I mean, there's certainly a long history in Western culture of this wanting to disconnect from your body. And we actually still have the same thing going on now with some of the people who are totally into computers where they talk about the meat body and they view that the real body is their brain, which is, or not even their physical brain, but, you know, their mind, which is somehow disembodied. And they're going to somehow upload that into cyberspace. I mean, it's all part of that really, really sad and tragic disconnection from nature, nature without and nature within Mhm that is at the core of the, of the crisis where we're literally destroying our life
0: support systems. Mhm. Mm-hmm. So you speak of systems uh, theory and wisdom traditions. So how to bring that uh that softness uh into the system Mm.
1: now we're talking about the archetypal feminine yes and this is of course you know writers have been talking about this for some time that the way we treat the feminine not just women but the feminine in both women and men is very analogous to how we treat the earth yes and This is a huge shift or a rebalancing that needs to happen. It's not that the archetypal feminine is going to somehow eclipse the archetypal masculine. It's that they need to come back into balance, and they've been way out of balance.
0: Okay. Well, that brings up uh, the idea of being devoured. When I was living on an island in Greece 15 years ago, I wondered why the people threw their refuse, what they refuse, their garbage out into nature. And I had this thought that uh, they've been afraid of being devoured by nature, the sea, the elements, for so long that they show contempt for it. So how do we deal with this fear of being devoured by our environment?
1: I think that is is certainly a very old fear. And, you know, nature is not always warm and kind. We know that. And, you know, if you imagine little bands of humans living in a big forest with many creatures, I mean, you know, nature can sometimes be very scary. But I think what's happened is that we've tried so hard to distance ourselves from nature and really to conquer, to dominate nature, that we've lost the understanding that what you put out comes back. (laughs) And a lot of Indigenous people have been trying to tell us this, and we haven't been listening. There's a, a recent group that started called 13 Indigenous Grandmothers,
0: Mm -hmm. And they
1: are indigenous elders, women, from many, many cultures who come together and they're all trying to tell us that we have to make this reconnection with the earth. Many indigenous cultures, not all, but many, um, they had a way of creating a balance. They didn't idealize nature, but they also understood the profound sacredness of the rest of nature, including their own part in it. And if we don't get that understanding back, we're literally going to make it impossible for our descendants to continue living on this planet. And I don't know how many people have actually understood that that's the challenge we've got right now, That is is whether or not human life is going to survive, to continue to survive. I mean, of course, many other animals are disappearing every day Mm -hmm. as species die out because of our behavior never faced a crisis
0: like this before in the history of humanity so we have a a paradox here between the fact that the more separated from uh, our bodies nature we are the more depressed we are Mm -hmm. and yet we are afraid of being overpowered by nature so what is the what is the middle ground there? What can you tell us? I think a lot of people are
1: actually longing at this point to reconnect with nature. I don't think it's the fear of nature that's preventing this. I think it's almost that we've forgotten how good it feels mm. to reconnect with nature. And actually... We see some evidence of this return or this longing in lots of places in our culture, whether it it is the interest in growing your own food or learning how to cook differently or um starting to want to be outdoors more i mean there's a lot of things happening where people are beginning to reconnect with nature, and those are those things are very hopeful, yeah.
0: The the joy uh, one feels by going to the farmers market. Exactly. Deep deep joy. Yep. So uh, Linda, talk to us about joy, joy, and the uh, the environment. Well, I
1: think you really you really described it when you talked about being in the farmers market and. There is this kind of joy that happens, and I think that people don't always understand what it is or why, but they just know it feels so good, because you're reconnecting with what you eat, you're reconnecting with your farmers who grow your food. It's suddenly we're getting all connected up again, and it's creating community that we've lost, because there's a huge longing for traditional Market is wonderful because it actually brings all of those things together. And the same thing can happen when you're out um, on a hike or in a wilderness walk or when you are with an animal and and the animal is allowed to be free. There's a a place near us here in Santa Barbara called Return to Freedom, which is a, a wonderful refuge for wild horses. And it's a place where you can go and you're not just running the horses, or ruling the horses, or riding the horses, you're you're a guest, and you can be part of the horse mm-hmm. culture if they'll let you. Mm-hmm. And the joy that you can feel doing things like that is overwhelming, and it's so much more powerful than these sort of phony joys like taking a drug or something.
0: Yeah, yeah. So, Linda, talk to us about your personal connection to place and how you practice your connection to the place where you are.
1: Well, when when my husband and I moved to Santa Barbara, and this was a long time ago, in 1992, we were coming out of many years of living in Los Angeles, which, of course, is sort of the ultimate kind of city, traffic, automobiles, congestion, all of that, and the only thing we knew was that we wanted to have a little piece of land and a tiny house, and that's what we did, and it's taken us all these years since to slowly reconnect with that one little piece of land, and you know, in the beginning, we came in with the very traditional attitudes, like, well, I'm going to design the garden, well, actually, no, that's not what happened. As we started to work in the garden, the garden began to basically communicate to us what it wanted. And we became aware of the other animals and plants that were already living here. It's like we were coming into an existing ecosystem. Nature was not some kind of blank, empty place. And slowly we began to plant some fruit trees. And that's what we've done. We've created a little forest, sort of a nature-based forest that just happens to create food for us and for our neighbors and people we share it with. And that's been such a profound change. I mean, that garden has really changed us. It's not that we've changed the garden. And, um, you know, we have a lot of students who come now to see what the garden is like and how they can create Um, a similar garden, and we also learned that the the Maya, the ancient Maya, Mm
0: -hmm. have
1: been creating food forests for millennia. This is not anything new that we're inventing. And um, my husband is actually now on the board of the El Pilar Foundation, which is run by Dr. Annabelle Ford from UC Santa Barbara, where she, you know, archaeologist, she's an archaeologist, and they went down to, Belize and they looked at all the ruins and she got more interested in the farming practices or the growing practices of the Maya and not so much in the buildings and she discovered this wonderful food forest system that has existed there for thousands of years and is still there where i mean this is very very ancient deep mm-hmm. in our dna deep in our souls of how to how to sort of work with nature to create abundance for ourselves and for all the animals and plants that we share a space with. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm.
0: So an antidote to uh, violence could be to be informed and invited by the natural process of nature.
1: That's right. And there's actually um, an ecotherapist named Shepard Bliss and there's other ecotherapists who do work on farms with returning veterans who are trying to recover from violence. So it's a, a known thing that working in nature, tending animals, tending plants, is, is the antidote to violence.
0: Wow. Wow. It's wonderful work. Yes. Linda, tell us some... Um What's foremost on your mind and heart at uh, this time?
1: Well, my husband and I are involved with a heart and soul group. Um, It's part of the Transition Town movement. And Mm -hmm. basically, it's to help those of us who are waking up to the real nature of the crisis we're all confronting Mm -hmm. sort of process it emotionally. Um, spiritually and to to basically find our way, find our balance, find our joy as these terrible things are happening all around us. And I see a great need for this kind of um, group or container or community mm-hmm. to help people who are awake to what's happening. It, this is a a big thing to hold, and we can't hold it individually. It's too much for us. And, of course, this builds on Joanna Macy's work, the eco-philosopher. She's been working on this for, gosh, decades now, helping people move from despair, including eco-despair, uh-huh. to empowerment where they, they move towards solutions and doing what they can to bring about a different way of living. And I'm, I'm very concerned that we have um, templates for how to do this in every town, in every city, in every location so that people can encourage each other and support each other as they move towards, you know, a greener relationship with the planet.
0: How could one uh, create such a group or join such a group?
1: Well, there is um, the transition movement is actually a really good place to start. Um, if people were to look at transitionculture.org, org, I think it might be .dot uk. I'm not sure, but if you Google transition culture, you'll find the transition movement. And a lot of it is very practical, but there is this, what they call this heart and soul aspect of transition, which is part of creating joy and community and having a good
0: life as we go through this big transition. As I look out the window, uh, I live in the country, and I see the, I see the clouds and I see the sky and the trees. You brought to my mind and heart that uh, it's about being aware of the context in which we exist.
1: we get really distracted by busy 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 or more and more stuff human made stuff that we forget to look outside the window like right now I'm looking at a little hummingbird yeah it's sitting on a branch it's like you know the old saying that we have to stop and smell the roses it's true we do
0: <laughs> yeah instead of stopping and smelling the coffee all the time yes. yeah yeah <laughs> Oh. Although coffee is a good natural product too if it's grown right. <laughs> that's true. That's true. <laughs> so, uh, dear Linda, what would you like to say in closing to the people who are listening to you?
1: Oh, I just wish for everyone that they find their personal way of reconnecting with nature, nature inside, nature outside, and begin to live a nature-connected, joyous life, and to share that with, with others around them, including the animals
0: and the plants. And um, get a copy of Ecotherapy, Healing with Nature in Mind, edited by Linda Bazell and Craig Childquist. Thank you so much, Linda. I so appreciate the time we have shared.
1: Oh, thank you, Joanna. Me too.
0: Future Primitive is made possible by the Marion Institute. If you enjoy these podcasts, Please consider supporting our work by making a tax deductible contribution online at futureprimitive.org.